This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 425,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership, complete with credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel any time and keep the free book, or keep going with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your offer. This week, I'm going to recommend The Golden Compass by Philip Pullman. Look, if you've never read these books, I think you owe it to yourself to read through the His Dark Materials trilogy. If nothing else, it may be a YA novel, but it's the only one that opens with a long-form quote from Paradise Lost that I've ever seen, and if that doesn't excite you, frankly, I don't know what will. They're... I don't even know how to describe them without spoiling them, but really interesting works of fantasy. And while they end in kind of a weird place, I think the ride getting there is a pretty interesting one. Go to audibletrial.com japan to check it out. History of Japan podcast, episode 325, The Tajin Scandal, part 2. If you were going to compile a list of who was who in the world of business in 1930s Japan, it would be hard to avoid talking about Go Seinosuke. Seinosuke was born at the absolute tail end of the Edo period in 1865 to a family of Hatamoto, mid- to low-ranking samurai who pledged their loyalty directly to the shogun rather than to another major lord. This was not particularly great for the family in many respects. After all, it did mean that when young Go Senosuke was only three, his father, Go Junzo, was going to lose his job when the Tokugawa shogunate collapsed. On the other hand, Go Junzo was a clever guy and managed to land on his feet, finding a job in what's now Hokkaido, helping direct the development, or arguably colonization, of this territory for Japan. From there, the Elder Go developed some powerful contacts in government and close friendships with many leading figures, most notably the business titan Shibusawa Eiichi. That opened a lot of doors for him so that by 1901, the Elder Go was among an elite club of 150 people with residences in Tokyo and assets over half a million yen. And all that, in turn, opened a lot of doors for young Go Senosuke. His father's growing influence was, of course, enough to get him pretty far. That, in combined with the natural brilliance Go Senosuke started to exhibit early in his life, allowed him to get into a series of excellent schools, culminating in tenures at Doshisha English School, the forerunner of the modern Doshisha University, and Tokyo Imperial University. From there, Go spent some time in Europe picking up German, he also learned English from American teachers in Japan, before going into the world of business, and there, he proved remarkably successful. Starting in the late 1880s, he got involved in a series of firms, including actually Nihon Kyodo Unyu, the fierce competitor of Mitsubishi, with his real specialty being the reconstruction and sale of government-sponsored firms, that had been established in the 1870s as part of an exercise in state-planned economy, most of which were failing pretty badly by the 1880s. 
From here, he took his wealth into the wider world of business, eventually becoming a major presence and eventually the president of the Tokyo Stock Exchange. The list of places Go Seinosuke was involved in reads like I'm just listing off all of the important business concerns of the time. In no particular order, he was either president or equivalent at the Tokyo Electric Light Company, the forerunner of the modern TEPCO, the Tokyo Chamber of Commerce and Industry, the Japan Economic Federation, the Industry Club of Japan, the National Conference of Industry Associations of Japan, the Japan Trade Promotion Council, and even the Japan League of Economic Organizations, the forerunner of the modern, powerful business association known as the Keidanren. Small wonder, then, that by 1911, he was awarded a spot in the peerage and a place in the upper house of the Japanese Diet, the House of Counselors, modeled on Britain's House of Lords. Now, this was the lowest possible rank in the peerage, to be fair, it had five levels, Baron or Danshaku, Viscount or Shishaku, Count or Hakshaku, Marquess or Koshaku, and Prince slash Koshaku, which is basically identical to the peerage model of the UK, those are ranked in ascending order, but still, it's something. Gosenosuke became a household name in Japan by the 1920s in the way that someone like Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos might be today, particularly once he started getting involved in politics. His predilections in the House of Counselors were overwhelmingly conservative. For example, in the 20s, he helped torpedo a series of bills to expand protection for labor unions. However, despite these conservative credentials, there were some who perceived him as undermining the basic social order of Japan. Here was a man who'd used his money and his dad's to buy his way to the top. For those suspicious of Japan's capitalists, a man like Go Seinosuke represented the worst sort of exploitative figure. Still, you have to imagine that Go was not much bothered by such critiques. He was, after all, living his best life at the center of power, no less. In addition to his prestigious postings around the world of business in Japan, he also ran an informal business group called the Bancholkai, named for the exclusive Banchol neighborhood of central Tokyo, where Go Seinosuke's mansion was. The club met once a month, on the 14th of each month to be specific, and did, well, a lot of things, it's kind of hard to pin down. These sorts of informal discussion groups could have a lot of influence in Japanese politics. After all, when a bunch of business people with a lot of money to spare come together and decide they agree on something, well, they've got a lot of weight to throw around. The Bancholkai was actively engaged in politics, backing pro-business members of government like Nakajima Kumakichi and Tatoyama Ichiro, and also served as a venue for its members to coordinate economically if, say, they all wanted to go in on some stocks they thought were going to do well. And that, more or less, is the Tajin scandal. You see, in the summer of 1933, the members of the Banjokai saw the growing sales numbers for Rayon and decided they wanted in. And hey, wasn't there some major Rayon company that had gone bankrupt back in the 20s that was now owned by, I think, the Bank of Taiwan, which was now legally obligated to sell those shares? I think I read that in the newspaper when I was on the toilet once. That sounds like a good deal. So the members of the Banjokai decided to go in on buying some Tajin stocks from the Bank of Taiwan hoping to buy them up together and then flip them for a quick profit. Of course, it wasn't that easy. The members of the Banchokai were not the only ones capable of reading a spreadsheet and noting that Rayon sales were going up, and there was some competition to buy those shares as a result. 
Still, the Bonchokai had plenty of cash to throw around, and by hook or by crook, they managed to get their hands on some of the shares, a hundred thousand of them actually. If memory serves, that's about 40% of the total holdings of the Bank of Taiwan, at the price of 125 yen per share. And lo and behold, the price of the stock continued to shoot up after the Bonchokai bought it. By the end of 1933, Tejin stock was trading at 200 yen a share, which was a 60% increase or so in the span of six months, I think. That's pretty good money right there. But that's when the problem started, too, because the good fortunes of the Bonchokai were noted by another famous business figure who was not a part of this exclusive little club, a man named Muto Sanji. Muto Sanji is actually a pretty fascinating guy, and his career is pretty wild. He was born in 1867 in what's now Ehime Prefecture in western Shikoku, the son of a wealthy peasant family. His father was village headman and used the family connections and wealth to arrange for his son to get the best education possible. By the time he was 13, Muto was involved in schools associated with the prestigious Keio University, one of the best private universities in Japan. Keio was a bastion of Western-style education geared towards inculcating its students with liberal values regarding individual rights, free market economics, and participatory democracy. I assume it still is, though I personally have not attended it. After graduating from Keio, his family wanted Muto to study in the United Kingdom. Unfortunately, the economic hardships of the 1880s bankrupted Muto the Elder, and so Muto the Younger was forced to settle for the less prestigious option of going to some middle-of-nowhere country called the United States to work for a bit. Muto Sanji spent several years in San Francisco, at first working as a domestic laborer before eventually saving up enough tuition to attend Pacific University. He would spend two years in the States before returning to Japan in 1887, and from there, he flitted between a few different fields. He would spend some time working as a journalist for papers like the Japan Gazette, but also spend a lot of time and energy in the world of business, doing turns in Mitsui's banking sector as well as, interestingly enough, the textile industry. Muto's Western education and his time in the States had made him an avowed Western-style liberal. Both in his journalism and his business work, he advocated for reforms intended to bring Japan closer to Western-style liberal democracy. For example, during his time in the textile industry, he arranged for the mill he ran to include such revolutionary features as childcare facilities as well as health and life insurance for employees. Eventually, Muto found his way into politics. After the Russo-Japanese War, he started to get more and more involved in the political scene with the goal of pushing Japan towards this Western-style liberalism he advocated for. For example, he published a series of pamphlets calling for things like the direct election of the prime minister instead of this indirect system where you vote for a party and then the emperor nominates the leader of the largest party as prime minister, and calling on the country to dissolve all its state-run industries on the ground that this sort of government interference in business was just a smidge too close to communism for comfort. Sanji would eventually go so far as to found a small political party himself and get elected to the Diet, where he would serve for 10 years. However, by the early 1930s, he'd become fed up with electoral politics and convinced that his efforts in that field were not yielding fast enough results. 
Instead, he turned to the world of journalism, taking over the newspaper Jiji Shinpo. This had once been a highly respected paper run by the great intellectual of the early imperial period, Fukuzawa Yukichi, but it had since fallen into disrepute. Muto Sanji was charged with writing the ship, and oh lord did he write the hell out of that ship. Sanji wrote daily editorials for the Jiji Shinpo, in which he used his now widely established reputation as a renaissance man and a generally ethical upstanding guy to attack what he perceived as corruption in the Japanese state. And those editorials were pretty good by all accounts, certainly the Jiji Shinpo's circulation picked up substantially under his direction. In December 1933, Sanji heard about the Bonchokai and their little stock purchase, and he became convinced that something nefarious was afoot in the whole affair. How else could the Bank of Taiwan have been convinced to part with so many Tajin shares for such a low price, when any idiot with half a brain could see that Rayon was a large market and those shares were only going to go up in value? Muto Sanji suggested that the members of the Bonchokai had engaged in dirty dealings to get access to the Tajin stocks, specifically that they had bribed members of the finance ministry in order to a. purchase the stocks at all, since there was fierce competition for them and a foot in the door at the finance ministry would help the Banchokai get noticed by the state-run Bank of Taiwan, and b. to buy the shares at a rate well below their real market value, given the obvious fact that any rayon company was going to do good business in the future. Now, Muto Sanji had always been a, let's call it, bombastic guy. He'd spent the majority of his career in the Diet publicly attacking the finance ministry for what he perceived as a nefarious combination of weak will, political cowardice, and outright greed. However, even by Muto's standards, this was a bit of a reach. There wasn't really any evidence of bribery to point to, and while it was true the Banchokai members had benefited from the sale, they hadn't paid an unfair price based on Tajin's valuation at the time. Nor is it that strange that the Bank of Taiwan was willing to sell to them in the first place. After all, the whole point of the bank's ownership of those Tajin stocks was to make good on its debts from the Suzuki Shoten bailout, so if it got a good price for a large number of the stocks, why wouldn't you sell? However, Muto's accusations did not take place in a vacuum. First, as we established last week, there was already a general atmosphere of hostility towards business and businessmen as inherently amoral and unpatriotic among the masses of 1930s Japan, and frankly, that was not without good reason. So plenty of people were willing to buy into this theory, even if it was presented with, let's call it minimal evidence. Muto's editorials, because he published way more than just one attacking the Banchokai, caused a large public stir to the point that by the first couple months of 1934, members of the Diet were openly questioning the finance minister himself about whether he or his underlings had been involved in any corrupt stock dealings, because remember, a lot of folks in the Diet right now don't like the sitting prime minister because he's not a party prime minister, he's a unity candidate forced on them by the emperor, and they saw this as a chance to undermine the prime minister by proxy. And then one of these things that sometimes just shakes the world up in weird ways happened. 
It's unclear how or if it was connected to the blooming Tajin scandal, but it had an impact for sure. On March 9, 1934, as Muto Sanji was walking the streets of Tokyo, a 41-year-old man walked up behind him, pulled out a pistol, and shot him in the back. Muto Sanji would die the following day. The man's name was Fukushima Shinkichi. He claimed to have shot Muto over a personal rivalry. Specifically, he claimed Muto had stolen a proposal to reform Tokyo's crematory system from him and published it under the Gigi Shinpo masthead as his own idea. In the process, Fukushima's attempts to lead this reform drive had failed, and he demanded that Muto help him fundraise and direct a new reform effort, was rebuffed, and decided to shoot the newspapermen. Now, I imagine some of you might be thinking, wait, I must be missing something here. He shot someone to death over a goddamn crematory reform? That seems a little thin. And you're not the only ones to think so. There have been reams of conspiracy theories around the death of Muto Sanji, claiming that Fukushima was an agent of the Banchokai, paid to silence him, and those rumors started a swirling before Muto Sanji's body was even cold. But it is so important to note here that there is no evidence of any conspiracy at play here, nothing beyond a sense of correlation between the scandal and the shooting suggests a connection, but it certainly is an interesting idea. And once Muto died, well, things heated up. You see, the finance ministry, the Bank of Taiwan, and the Banchokai members all denied any wrongdoing, insisting the shares were purchased 100% legally, and Prime Minister Saito backed their insistence on innocence, presumably hoping the whole thing was going to blow over. But here's where we have to go back to something we discussed last time, the beef between the finance ministry and the Tokyo District Court Procurator's Office. We've covered a lot of beefs here, so let's back up a little bit. Right as the Tajin scandal was getting going, another fight between the finance ministry and the procurator's office, essentially the Tokyo district attorney, was wrapping up. The fight was over Meiji Sugar, which was accused of failing to pay its back taxes. The finance ministry supported a lenient approach to Meiji Sugar. The procurator's office wanted to throw the book at them. The finance ministry with the backing of Prime Minister Saito, ultimately had gotten its way, and Meiji Sugar paid a pretty lackluster settlement for tax evasion. In the process, though, a lot of bad blood had built up between the finance ministry, which saw the procurator's office as stepping into the tax issue uninvited, and the procurator's office, which saw the finance ministry as covering for Meiji Sugar in flouting the laws they were charged with enforcing. Nobody at the procurator's office was angrier than Kuroda Etsuro, the procurator who had pushed for the right to prosecute Meiji Sugar and who had been rebuffed by the finance ministry, and now there was a big ol' scandal at the finance ministry that needed investigating, a scandal including a possible political murder. The finance ministry was trying to cover it all up again, but he would not be rebuffed a second time, and so Kuroda and the procurator's office stepped in and announced in April that they were arresting the vice minister of the finance ministry, Kuroda Hideo, on suspicion of corruption, and the prime minister of the Bank of Taiwan, Shimada Shigeru, on suspicion of breach of trust and bribery. And that was not the end of it. The arrests began in April, but by July the procurator's office was picking up steam, 
a total of 16 people were arrested, including three more finance ministry bureaucrats, all of them from the banking section, a former member of the Saito cabinet, Nakajima Kumakichi, the same guy who had been forced out of office for talking positively about Ashikaga Takauji, he was also a Banchokai member by the by, and a current cabinet member, Mitsuji Chuzo, who was the railway minister. Also caught up in the offing were several Banchokai members, including a few who had previously served in government, though not Gosenosuke himself. And that, in turn, had some political consequences. The popularity of the sitting cabinet under Admiral Saito Makoto was tanking as more and more members of the finance ministry, not to mention the cabinet, were being arrested. The situation was clearly untenable, particularly for someone who had taken on the job of prime minister in order to unify the country after the scandal of the previous officeholder being, you know, brutally stabbed to death in his office. And so, on July 8th, 1934, Prime Minister Saito and his entire cabinet resigned, too tainted by the scandal surrounding Tejin to continue on. At the same time, the investigation into the Tejin stock dealings was heating up, with huge amounts of resources poured into that investigation, and here's where we have to go into one of the other conspiracy theories surrounding this whole affair. You see, it is sometimes alleged that the investigation into the Tajin scandal was stoked from behind the scenes by Japanese ultra-rightists who hoped to use the scandal involving business and political leaders to, well, discredit business and political leaders, and thus open the door to a right-wing government dominated by the military, the bureaucracy, and the radical right, which would be accepted by the people who no longer trusted the old leadership of the diet and the business world. This conspiracy is often laid at the feet of Hiranuma Kichiro, a man we've dealt with before peripherally on this podcast. He's infamous for three things. First, he was one of Japan's most prolific prosecutors in the 1920s, working hard to throw the book at anyone with remotely leftist sympathies, and drafting the infamous 1925 peace preservation law in the process, which criminalized even the suggestion of altering the makeup of the Japanese state. Second, he founded a right-wing political party called the Kokuhonsha, the National Foundation Society, which was dedicated to rejecting all Western ideologies and embracing a right-wing vision of Japan as centered entirely on the person of the emperor. Third, Way after all of this, in 1945, Hiranuma would be in the room as the prospects for Japan's surrender were discussed, and he would be one of the ones to push against accepting American demands for unconditional surrender, even as Japan burned to the ground around him because there was no guarantee the emperor would keep his current job. I gotta say personally, I really do not like this guy. So the theory is that Hiranuma orchestrated the prosecution as a way of publicly undermining trust in political party and business leaders so that he and his Kokohonsha allies could take advantage of the lack of confidence in those leaders to seize more power and authority for themselves. It's certainly a compelling theory, and it's true that Hiranuma had no love for political or business leaders and publicly condemned them as divisive, and he had no compunctions about undermining Japan's democracy more generally. His championing of the authoritarian peace preservation law makes that clear, 
And as a former prosecutor and a former justice minister, and one of the emperor's personal advisors, he had the clout and the connections to arrange the prosecutions. But there's no actual evidence that Hiranuma masterminded any sort of anti-government conspiracy during the Tajin incident. Modern scholarship on the incident rejects the suggestion that Hiranuma was behind the prosecutions completely. Hiranuma certainly pounced on the prosecutions as a way to attack elected officials and businessmen, see what they do amongst themselves against the national interest, but he was not the only one to do that. And the idea that he was somehow the force behind the prosecutions is at best only a circumstantially supported conspiracy theory. Because the truth was, nobody really needed a nudge from someone like Hiranuma to accept the possibility that maybe there was something untoward going on here. After all, political corruption stories were a dime a dozen in 30s Japan. But was there any truth to the allegations? Kuroda Etsuro and the Tokyo Procurator's Office dug furiously for it and with every tool at their disposal. Even today, Japan's criminal justice system is far stricter than most other democracies. For example, Japanese police can hold someone today for up to three weeks with no charges compared to three days in the USA. Before 1945, the system was even stricter, with basically no protections for suspects, and Kuroda and company used this to its fullest. Again, ultimately they arrested 16 people for connection to this supposed conspiracy, and worked them over mercilessly to get them to confess in involvement. What does that mean? Well, based on what we know of the interrogation techniques used by the police, probably long interrogations, 12 plus hours with no breaks, sleep deprivation, possibly flat out beatings, these are conditions under which most people would crack, and a lot of the defendants did. Funny thing though, their stories never matched up. When they did confess, their stories were always contradictory or didn't match the theories Kuroda and the other prosecutors held about how things had gone down. Because the reality was, there was no actual evidence of a conspiracy, and frankly there just wasn't a conspiracy at all. The defendants were confessing because, frankly, most people will say whatever they have to in a situation like that to make it stop. Undaunted by the fact that they didn't have much to work with, or perhaps realizing that having arrested 16 of the most prominent men in Japan and collapsed a prime minister's government, they better have something to show for it, the prosecutors took the case to trial, which lasted a whopping 266 days from start to finish. And the procurators took so long actually finding anything to investigate, the trial didn't begin until 1936. Now, under the Japanese justice system, until very recently, there were no jury trials. Verdicts were delivered by a panel of judges. These judges usually sided with prosecutors. There was, and sometimes still is, a sort of default assumption in the Japanese justice system that if the prosecutors felt there was enough to bring someone to trial, then a conviction was basically obligatory unless there was clear evidence of misconduct. But as the trial went on, and the procurators introduced statements and evidence from the defendants that seemed to contradict each other, it became clear to the judges that there was something fishy about this case. And so ultimately, after 266 days, 
they did something that judges in Japan then and now still very rarely do. They voted to acquit the defendants on every single charge, and the whole case was thrown out. And that's the end of the Tajin scandal. But wait, this is a huge anticlimax. I spent two whole episodes setting up a scandal that doesn't actually exist. What gives? Well, what's interesting to me about the Tajin scandal isn't so much the scandal, though it is pretty juicy for a scandal that doesn't exist. More importantly, though, I think it reveals some of the fault lines within 1930s Japanese society that will eventually allow radicals and militarists to seize control of the state in the first place. When you really look at it, it was clear from the get-go that the Tajin stock purchases were all above board, and there really wasn't much of anything to make them look suspect at all. But the purchases took place in an atmosphere of extreme suspicion. Leaders of the Diet were attacking each other over scandals left and right, even as business leaders were ruthlessly exploiting their economic advantages to enrich themselves while waving around patriotic slogans. And to be clear, by the way, that includes members of the Banchokai and the Tajin defendants. They weren't guilty of the crimes they were accused of. That does not make them good people. And to boot, the government bureaucracy was divided against itself, with the Tokyo procurators looking more than anything to put one over on the finance ministry which had frustrated their aspirations in the Meiji sugar case. Now, you might say, all this bureaucratic infighting and political sniping, that's just par for the course, that's politics, baby. And you're not necessarily wrong. But all of this was happening in extraordinary times. Remember, this whole scandal takes place after the 1931 invasion of Manchuria, when a unit of the army just straight up ignored orders and invaded a sovereign country because they felt like it. This all took place after the freaking prime minister was stabbed to death in his office by radicals for daring to question that choice. This was not a time for leaders of the country to be sniping at each other, especially over a non-scandal. But instead, they proceeded with business as usual. And by doing so, they not only failed to address the problems of the time, they actually amplified fascist talking points about the selfish interest of non-fascist leaders. That's why the Tajin scandal deserves to be remembered alongside the 1932 assassination of Prime Minister Inukai and the 1936 coup attempt. It, too, was a step along the road to delegitimizing the pre-war order. The scandal only reinforced arguments that elected political leaders and businessmen were self-serving, that they were greedy traitors, and that the whole system needed to be swept away by whoever had the will to do it. Even though ultimately there was nothing to the whole thing, the scandal helped to drive Japan one step closer to the brink, and from there, towards catastrophe. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Special thanks this week to Hungju Ma for donating to support the show. To join them, to find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit your ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at isaacmeyer.net, that's I-S-A-A-C-M-E-Y-E-R.net, or our Facebook page, facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week when we tackle a second great scandal of 20th century Japan, the post-war Lockheed scandal.